Section 18 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16. The Opposition. The trouble had hardly been got rid of in Ireland by Carteret's judicious advice and the withdrawal of Wood's patent, when a commotion that at one time threatened to be equally serious broke out in Scotland. English members of Parliament had been for many years complaining that Scotland was exempt from any taxation on malt. Up to that time, no government had attempted to take any steps toward establishing equality in this respect between the two countries. Walpole now strove to deal with the question. It was proposed to the House of Commons that instead of a malt duty in Scotland, a duty of sixpence should be levied on every barrel of ale. Walpole, at first, was not inclined to deal with the difficulty in this way, but, as the feeling of the House was very strongly in favor of making some attempt, he consented to adopt the principle suggested, but required that the duty should be threepence instead of sixpence. The moment it became known in Scotland that any tax on malt or ale was to be imposed, rioting began in the principal cities. The spirit of the national motto, asserted itself, Nemo me impune lacessit. The ringleaders of various mobs were arrested and sent for trial, but the Scotch juries, following the recent example of the Irish, refused to convict. Brewers all over Scotland entered into a sort of league by virtue of which they pledged themselves not to give any securities for the new duty and to cease brewing if the government exacted it. Unluckily for Walpole, the Secretary of State for Scotland, the Duke of Roxburgh, was a great friend of Carteret's, and had joined with Carteret in endeavouring to thwart Walpole in all his undertakings. The success of Walpole's policy, in any instance, was understood by Carteret and by Roxburgh to mean Walpole's supremacy over all other ministers. The Duke of Roxburgh therefore took advantage of the crisis in Scotland to injure the administration, and especially to injure Walpole. In a subtle and underhand way, he contrived to favor and foment the disturbance. He took care that the orders of the government should not be too quickly carried out, and he gave more than a tacit encouragement to the common rumor that the king, in his heart, was hostile to the new tax, that the tax was wholly an invention of Walpole's, and that resistance to such a measure would not be unwelcome to the sovereign and would lead to the dismissal of the minister. Walpole was not long in finding out the treachery of the Duke of Roxburgh. To adopt a homely phrase, he took the bull by the horns at once. Lord Townsend was in Hanover with the king, and Walpole wrote to Lord Townsend, giving him a full account of all that was going on in Scotland, and laying the chief blame for the continuance of the disturbance on the Duke of Roxburgh. I beg leave to observe, wrote Walpole, that the present administration is the first that was ever yet known to be answerable for the whole government with a Secretary of State for one of the kingdom who, they are assured, acts counter to all their measures, or at least whom they cannot confide in. His remonstrance had to be pressed again and again upon Townsend before anything was done to satisfy him. Walpole, however, was a man to press where he thought the occasion demanded it, 
and he was successful in the end. The Duke of Roxburgh had to resign, and Walpole added to his own duties those of the Secretary of State for Scotland. He appointed, however, as his agent or deputy in the administration of Scotland, the Earl of Isla, Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal in that country, and a man on whose allegiance he could entirely rely. Having thus secured a full power to act, Walpole was not long in bringing the disturbances to an end. He displayed both discretion and resolve. He was able to satisfy the most reasonable among the brewers and maltsters that their interests would not really suffer by the proposed resolutions. The natural result was that the combination of brewers began to melt away. The brewers held a meeting, and it was soon found that it would not be possible to secure a general resolution to meet the legislation of the government by passive resistance and by ceasing to brew. As all would not stand together, every man was left to take his own course, and the result was that what we should now call a strike came quickly to an end. A modern reader is naturally shocked and surprised at the manner in which members of the same government in Walpole's day intrigued against one another and strove to thwart each other's policy. No actual defense is to be made for such a practice, but it is only fair to observe that up to Walpole's own entrance into office and after it, the habit of English sovereigns had been to make up an administration by taking members of different and even opposing parties and bringing them together in the hope of securing thereby the cooperation of all parties. Under these circumstances, it was natural, it was only to be expected, that the minister who was pledged to one policy would endeavor by all means in his power to counteract the designs of the minister whom he knew to be pledged to a very different kind of policy. Nor, indeed, is the practice of intrigue and counter-intrigue among members of the same cabinet actually unknown in our own days, when there is not the same excuse to be pleaded for it that might have been urged in the time of Walpole. In the case of the Duke of Roxburgh, however, the attempt to counteract the policy of Walpole was made in somewhat bolder and less subtle fashion than was common even in those days, and Walpole was well justified in the course he took. For once, his high-handed way of dealing with men was vindicated by its principle and by the unqualified advantage it brought to the interests of the state and to those of the minister as well. The student of history derives one satisfaction from the frequent visits of King George to Hanover. The correspondence between Walpole and Townsend, which was made necessary by those visits, gives us many an interesting glimpse into political affairs in their reality, in their undress, in their secret movement, which no ordinary state papers or diplomatic dispatches could be trusted to give. The Secretary of State often communicates to the representative of his country at some foreign court only just that view of a political situation which he wishes to put under the eyes of the foreign sovereign and foreign statesman. But Walpole writes to Townsend exactly what he himself believes, and what it is important both to Townsend and to him that Townsend shall fully know. I think, Walpole says to Townsend in one of his letters, we have once more got Ireland and Scotland quiet if we take care to keep them so. Exactly. If only care be taken to keep them so. The same chance had often been given to English statesmen before. Ireland and Scotland quiet, 
and might have continued in quietness if care had only been taken to keep them so the king was much pleased with walpole's success he made him one of the thirty-eight knights of the bath the order of the bath had gone out of use out of existence in fact since the coronation of charles the second george the first revived it in seventeen twenty five and bestowed its honours on walpole it seems an odd sort of reward for the shrewd practical and somewhat coarse-fibred squire statesman the close connection between man and the child civilized man and the savage is never more clearly illustrated than in the joy and pride which the wisest statesman feels in the wearing of a ribbon or a star in the next year the king made walpole a knight of the garter after this honour all other mark of dignity would be but an anticlimax from the time of his introduction to the order of the bath the great minister ceased to be plain mr walpole and became sir robert walpole meanwhile under walpole's order of the bath many a throb of pain must have made itself felt the minister began to find himself harassed by the most formidable opposition that had ever set itself against him lord carteret was out of the way for the moment and only for the moment but pulteney proved a much more pertinacious ingenious and dangerous enemy than carteret had hitherto been pulteney was at one time the faithful follower the enthusiastic admirer almost the devotee of walpole the one great political defect of walpole filled him with faults he could not bear the idea of a divided rule he would be all or nothing he would have clerks and servants for his colleagues in office not real ministers actual statesmen he was under the mistaken impression that a man of genius is to be reduced to tame insignificance by merely keeping him out of important office he had made this mistake with regard to carteret he made it now with regard to pulteney the consequence was far more serious for pulteney was neither so good-humoured nor so indolent as carteret and he could not be put aside pulteney was a man of singular eloquence of eloquence peculiarly adapted to the house of commons his style was brilliant incisive and penetrating he could speak on any subject at the spur of the moment he never delivered a set speech he was a born parliamentary debater all his resources seemed to be at instant command according as he had need of them his reading was wide deep and varied he was a most accomplished classical scholar and had a marvellous readiness and aptitude for classical allusion he was a wit and a humorist he could brighten the dullest topics and make them sparkle by odd and droll illustrations as well as by picturesque allusions and eloquent phrases he could when the subject called for it break suddenly into thrilling invective but he had some of the defects of the extemporaneous orator his eloquence his wit his epigrams often carried him away from his better judgment he frequently committed himself to some opinion which was not really his and was led far from his proper position in the pursuit of some paradox or by the charm of some fantastic idea he was a brilliant writer as well as a brilliant speaker his private character would have little blame if it were not that a fondness for money kept growing with his growing years 
for a good old gentlemanly vice says byron i think i must take up with avarice pulteney did not even wait to be an old gentleman to take up with the good old gentlemanly vice we have in some measure now to take his talents on trust as we have those of carteret he proved to be little more than the comet of a season when he had gone he left no line of light behind him but it is certain that in the estimation of his contemporaries he was one of the most gifted men of his time and for a while he was the most popular man in england the darling and hero of the multitude when walpole was sent to the tower in the late queen's reign pulteney had spoken up manfully for his friend when townsend and walpole resigned office in seventeen seventeen pulteney went resolutely with them and resigned office also the time came when walpole found himself triumphant over all his enemies and came back not merely to office but likewise to power naturally pulteney expected that walpole would invite him to fill some place of importance in the new administration walpole did nothing of the kind he had seen ample evidence of pulteney's great parliamentary talents in the meantime and he feared that with pulteney for an official colleague he could never be a dictator he was anxious however not to offend pulteney and he had the curious weakness to imagine that he could conciliate pulteney by offering him a peerage even at that time when the sceptre of popular power had not yet passed altogether into the hands of the representative chamber it was absurd to suppose that pulteney would consent to be withdrawn from the house in which he had made his fame which was his natural and fitting place and which already was seen by every man of sense to be the central force of england's political life pulteney contemptuously refused the peerage from that hour his old love for walpole seems to have turned into hate the explosion however did not come at once pulteney continued to be on seemingly good terms with walpole and shortly afterwards the comparatively humble post of cofferer to the household was offered to him some say was asked for by him it does not seem likely that even then he had any intention of a serious reconciliation with walpole perhaps he accepted this post in the expectation that he would shortly be raised to a much higher position in the state but walpole although willing enough to give him any mark or place of honour on condition that he withdraw to the house of lords was afraid to allow him any office of influence while he remained in the commons however this may be pulteney's ambition was not satisfied and he very soon broke publicly away from walpole altogether when a motion was brought on in april of seventeen twenty five for discharging the debts of the civil list in reply to a message from the king himself pulteney demanded an inquiry into the manner in which the money had been spent and even made a fierce attack on the whole administration and accused it of something very like downright corruption he was dismissed from his office as cofferer and even making allowance for his love of money the wonder is that he should have held it long enough to be dismissed from it he then went avowedly over into the ranks of the enemies of walpole inside and outside the house of commons the position taken by pulteney is chiefly interesting to us now in the fact that it opened a distinctly new chapter in english politics 
Pulteney created the part of what has ever been since called the leader of opposition. With him begins the time when the real leader of opposition must have a place in the House of Commons. With him, too, begins the time when the opposition has for its recognized duty not merely to watch with jealous care all the acts of the ministers in order to prevent them from doing anything wrong, but also to watch for every opportunity of turning them out of office. With Pulteney and his tactics began the party organization which inside the House of Commons and outside works unceasingly with tongue and pen, with open antagonism and underhand intrigue, with all the various social as well as political influences, the pamphlet, the press, the petticoat, and even the pulpit, to discredit everything done by the men in office, to turn public opinion against them, and if possible, to overthrow them. Pulteney and his supporters were now and then somewhat more unscrupulous in their measures than in English opposition would be in our time, but theirs was unquestionably the policy of all our more modern English parties. From this time forth, almost to the close of his active career as a politician, Pulteney performed the part of leader of the opposition in the strictly modern sense. His position in history seems to us to be distinctly marked as that of the first leader of opposition. Whether history shows reason to thank him for creating such a part is another and a different question. Pulteney had some powerful allies. The king, as we know, hated his son, the Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales hated his father. No reconciliation got up between them could be lasting or real. The father and son hardly ever met except on the occasion of some great public ceremonial. The standing quarrel between the sovereign and his heir had the effect of creating two parties in political life, one of which supported the king and the king's advisers, while the other found its centre in the house of the heir to the throne. We shall see this condition of things reappearing in all of the subsequent reigns of the Georges. The ministry and their friends were detested and denounced by those who surrounded the Prince of Wales. The adherents of the Prince of Wales were virtually proscribed by the king. Then, as at a later date in the history of the Georges, those who favoured and were favoured by the princes were looking out with anxious hope for the king's death. When the old king is dead as nail in door, then indeed each leading supporter of the new king believed he could say with Falstaff, The laws of England are at my commandment. Happy are they which have been my friends. Pulteney and his supporters were among the friends and favourites of the Prince of Wales. They constituted the Prince's party. The Prince's party was composed mainly of the men who were Tories, but not Jacobites, and of the Whigs who disliked Walpole, or had been overlooked or offended by him, or who in sober honesty were opposed to his policy. In all these, and in a daily growing number of the people out of doors, Pulteney had his friends and Walpole his enemies. But a more formidable rival than even Pulteney was now again to the front and active in hostility to Walpole. This was the man whom the official records of the time described as the late Viscount Bolingbroke. The late Viscount Bolingbroke, it need hardly be said, means that Henry St. John, whose title of Viscount had been forfeited when he fled to France and joined the Pretender. Bolingbroke had lately received the pardon of King George. 
he had secured the pardon chiefly by means of an influence then familiar and recognized in politics that of one of the king's mistresses bolingbroke had got money with his second wife and through her he conveyed to the duchess of kendal a large sum about ten thousand pounds with the intimation that more would be forthcoming from the same place if necessary to obtain his object the duchess of kendal was easily prevailed upon under these circumstances to recognize the justice of bolingbroke's claim and the sincerity of his repentance moreover there was about the same time that political intrigue or rather rivalry of intrigues going on between walpole and carteret between england and france in which it was thought the influence of bolingbroke might be used with advantage as it was in fact used to walpole's ends for all these reasons the pardon was obtained and bolingbroke was allowed to return to england nor was he long put off with a mere forgiveness which kept from him his forfeited estates and his right to the family inheritance here i am he wrote to swift soon after two-thirds restored my person safe unless i meet hereafter with harder treatment than even that of sir walter raleigh and my estate with all the other property i have acquired or may acquire secured to me but the attainder is kept prudently in place lest so corrupt a member should come again into the house of lords and his bad leaven should sour that sweet untainted mass walpole was quite willing that the forfeiture of lord bolingbroke's estates and the interruption of the inheritance should be recalled it was necessary for this purpose to pass an act of parliament on april twentieth seventeen twenty five lord finch presented to the house of lords the petition of henry st john late viscount bolingbroke the petition set forth that the petitioner was truly concerned for his offence in not having surrendered himself pursuant to the directions of an act of the first year of his majesty's reign and that he had lately in most humble and dutiful manner made his submission to the king and given his majesty the strongest assurances of his inviolable fidelity and of his zeal for his majesty's service and for the support of the present happy establishment which his majesty hath been most graciously pleased to accept the petition then prayed that leave might be given to bring a bill to enable the petitioner and his heirs male to take and enjoy in person the estates of which he was then or afterwards should be possessed walpole as chancellor of the exchequer informed the house that he had received his majesty's command to say that george was satisfied with bolingbroke's penitence was convinced that lord bolingbroke was a proper object of mercy and consented that the petition should be presented to the house lord finch then moved that a bill be brought in to carry out the prayer of the petition the chancellor of the exchequer seconded and strongly advocated the motion it was opposed with great vigour by mr methuen the controller of the household and formerly british minister in portugal methuen denounced bolingbroke's scandalous and villainous conduct during his administration of affairs in queen anne's reign his clandestine negotiation for peace his insolent behaviour toward the allies of england his sacrificing the interests of the whole confederacy and the honour of his country most especially in the abandonment of the catalans and to sum up all his crimes in one 
his traitorous design of defeating the protestant succession and of advancing a popish pretender to the throne this speech we read made a great impression on the assembly and several distinguished members arthur onslow among the rest spoke movingly on the same side the motion however was carried two hundred and thirty one votes against one hundred and thirteen the bill was prepared and went up to the house of lords on may fifth was carried there by a large majority was sent back to the house of commons with some slight amendments was accepted there and received the royal assent some of the peers put on record a strong and earnest protest against the passing of such a measure the protest recited all the charges against bolingbroke declared that those who signed it knew of no particular public services which bolingbroke had lately rendered and which would entitle him to a generous treatment and further added that no assurances which this person hath given could be a sufficient security against his future insincerity for having already so often violated the most solemn assurances and obligations and in defiance of them having openly attempted the dethroning of his majesty and the destruction of the liberties of his country bolingbroke however wanted something more than restoration to his title and to his forfeited right of inheritance his active and untamed spirit was eager for political strife again and his heart burned with a longing to take his old place in the debates of the house of lords against this walpole had made a firm resolve and on this point he would not yield he would not allow his eloquent and daring rival to have a voice in parliament any more in this as it seems to us walpole acted neither wisely nor magnanimously bolingbroke's safest place so far as the interests of the public and even the political interests of his rivals were concerned would have been in the house of lords he would have delivered brilliant speeches there and would have worked off his energies in that harmless fashion in walpole's time however the idea had not yet arisen that an enemy to the settled order of things is least dangerous when he is most free to speak bolingbroke who had always hated walpole even lately when he was professing regard and gratitude hated him now more than ever and set to work by all the means in his power to injure walpole in the estimation of the country and if possible to undermine his whole political position bolingbroke and pulteney soon came into political companionship there was a certain affinity between the intellectual nature of the two men and they had now a common object both were literary men as well as politicians and they naturally put their literary gifts to the fullest account in the campaign they had undertaken in our days two such men combining for such a purpose would contrive to get incessant leading articles into some daily paper perhaps would start a weekly or even a daily evening paper of their own bolingbroke and pulteney were men in advance of their age in some respects at least they did between them start a paper they established the famous craftsman the craftsman was started in seventeen twenty six it was first issued daily in single leaves or sheets after the fashion of the spectator it was soon however changed into a weekly newspaper bearing the title of the craftsman or country journal its editor nicholas amherst took the feigned name of caleb d'anvers and the paper itself was commonly called caleb accordingly 
the craftsman was brilliantly written and was inspired by the most unscrupulous passion of partisan hate walpole was held up in prose and verse in bold invective and droll lampoon as a traitor to the country as a man stuffed and gorged with public plunder audacious in his profligate disregard of political principle and common honesty a danger to the state and a disgrace to parliamentary life the circulation of the craftsman at one time surpassed that of the spectator at the height of the spectator's popularity not always are more flies caught by honey than by vinegar End of chapter 16